In case you didn't pick it up with the children, let me read that passage to you one more time. (laughs) When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Does that sound strange to you? Is that the Easter story that you remember? Wasn't there more like Jesus appearing to people and, and uh Uh, the disciples talking about it and you eventually telling everyone all about who Jesus was and what he had done. Now, Easter Day is a day of celebration. It's a day of triumph. The man that everyone thought was killed, some looking with joy and satisfaction on the event and others with grief, shock, and sorrow, he is alive again. What is Mark doing to us? Is he trying to ruin our Easter Sunday? Should we all just go home and be like, well, that was lame? I mean, look, Mark's gospel ends with the women alone, running away from the tomb, terrified. That's his ending. He is not invited to write the end to my favorite TV shows. Seriously. Is Mark the Easter party pooper, the Debbie Downer? Is he so sad in the rest of his life that he had to write the sad version of the resurrection? Why does Mark end his gospel this way? Okay, I need you this morning to get a Bible and open it to Mark chapter 16. Okay, there are Bibles in the pews. You can share them if you need to. I hope you like each other. If you brought your own Bible, you're ahead of the game. Congratulations. If uh, you're looking for uh, this passage in your pew Bible, it's on page 1554, 1554. If uh, you brought your own Bible, Mark is the second book in the New Testament, and we're going to the end of Mark, chapter 16, just before the beginning of Luke, the next book. All right. Most of your Bibles, if you're looking at them right now, will take verses 9 to 20. See, in most of our Bibles, you've got verses 1 to 8 here, and then there's verses 9 to 20 down below. But they look a bit different. They separate, uh, most Bibles separate this from the rest of the text of Mark somehow. In the case of our pew Bibles, there's a long line across the page between verses 8 and uh, 9, and it says, uh, in brackets, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have 9 through 20. The exception is if you're reading out of the King James Version this morning, which uh, is, exists to make my life more difficult. But I'll come back to that in a minute, okay? So if you're a King James reader, I'll tell you why it doesn't say that in just a moment. But basically, here's the issue. There is no original copy of the New Testament available to us. 
You ever thought about that? There's not a museum somewhere that has on a pedestal an ancient book that's got both the Old Testament and the New Testament in its entirety in it. It says this is the original authentic copy. There is no such thing. The original copies are almost certainly either destroyed or lost or simply decayed because it's been a long time since the New Testament was written. Uh, So how does the New Testament get put together in our Bibles for us? It seems like an important question. I'm going to help you with that this morning. The 27 books of the New Testament were originally written between about 8040 and 8090 in Greek, not in English, okay? So definitely if that book was in the museum, it wouldn't be in English anyway, and none of us could read it. It's written in Greek. Those original gospels and letters and so on were then copied and passed around to Christian churches all over the Roman Empire. Eventually, a number of them were brought together into codices, which I'm pretty sure is the plural form of codex, if I've done my grammar correctly. All you need to know about this is that a codex is essentially an ancient book. But that didn't happen until years and years after these documents were originally written. Now today, we have thousands of ancient fragments of the New Testament, some of which are uh, like this one on the screen, I hope, momentarily. There it is. Uh, Like this one on the screen, Uh, only a few verses long. This is actually a fragment from the Gospel of John. It is the earliest known fragment, the very oldest fragment of any part of the New Testament. We think it came from sometime around 100 to 150 A.D. So that's only at the most about 50 to 60 years after the Gospel of John was actually written. We think it was written somewhere around 90 A.D. Now, to be clear, these are educated guesses. So we we don't know uh, 100% for sure, but we're pretty confident that this is something like 50 years after that book was first written. Now let me tell you something right here. In terms of all of the ancient literature in the world, the works of Plato and Aristotle and, and Homer, all of these old writers who lived thousands of years ago, there is nothing like that, like this, in terms of evidence for those ancient texts. The Bible, the New Testament in particular, is absolutely unique in how well attested that text is. There are thousands of copies of the New Testament, some of them ranging from the 2nd century all the way up to the 12th century and, and of course, later. Uh, And then when you come to something like Homer or something like Plato, there are maybe a handful of ancient copies in existence. This is an absolutely unique situation and a unique book. Now, you can imagine, if you have thousands of hand-copied ancient manuscripts of the New Testament, because there are no copiers or scanners, nothing is digital, it's all done by hand, there are some differences between those various thousands of texts that we have. Now, the vast majority of the differences between these texts are of no significance whatsoever. Things like Jesus Christ being inverted to Christ Jesus. Does that have any significant impact on the meaning of anything in the Bible if you switch Jesus Christ and Christ Jesus? This is where you shake your heads. So I'm not trying to tell you what to think, but that's what you should think, okay? (laughs) A handful of those differences, however, are significant enough that we'd like to establish exactly which variant reading is correct. But I want to emphasize Even if there's a place where we're not 100% sure what the text of the New Testament says, it's never in a place that would impact a core doctrine of our faith. 
Okay? It's, it's things that are nuances rather than key ideas. So even if we couldn't tell, to rephrase this, what an original reading was, what the gospel writers actually said in this specific place, we would still know who Jesus was and how we are called to follow him. Uh, if you are interested, I have here in my hand a Greek New Testament from the United Bible Society. And this uh, particular Greek New Testament, besides having you know, all of the New Testament in Greek, has a critical apparatus at the bottom where it says, here are all the differences that we think you might be interested in knowing about, and here's all the texts that say this and all the texts that say that, and so on and so forth. This information is readily available, and the scholarship on it is excellent. It's pretty spectacular. I personally find this very interesting. I would study this for free. Uh, a lot of you think that's weird, and that's okay. So, Now, this passage in Mark is a place where ancient manuscripts do disagree. The manuscripts that we believe to be the earliest and best witnesses to the original gospel of Mark end with verse 8. Especially, uh, you don't have to remember this, but if it helps you, especially Codex Sinaiticus, also called Aleph, and Codex Vaticanus. These are clearly our very best witnesses to the original text in the New Testament, some of the earliest witnesses. And one of my professors in seminary used to say, if Aleph and B agree, which is another name for those two texts, that's good enough for me. So using that rule of thumb, we'd have to actually cut verses 9 to 20 out of Mark. And most scholars think that's what we should do. So as your pastor this morning, and supported by the best evidence I can find, we're going to operate under the assumption that Mark's gospel really does end here in verse 8. It doesn't continue with all of these nice things that we'd kind of like to hear, that Jesus then appeared to uh, the women, and then she went and told people, and then he appeared to some of the men, and you know, then he rebuked the eleven for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal. That stuff is really satisfying to us. Mark's ending is really difficult. Why would he end it with the women being afraid and telling nobody? It's not because that's all that happened. But it's because that's really what fits best Mark's story about Jesus, the way he wants us to see him. Not that he wants us to see a different Jesus than the other gospel writers, but that he says, here's something else you should know about him. Now, a quick word to you King James readers. The reason the King James doesn't separate this off is because it's based off of a different philosophy of textual criticism and uh, how to best identify the text of the New Testament, uh, it's because that the King James translation is based mostly off of stuff that Erasmus in the 15th and 16th centuries pulled together, and he just used the texts that were available to him, and we have way more texts available to us today. So God bless the King James Version. He has used it in wonderful ways, uh, and I think you can continue reading it. I'd encourage you to read the Bible, no matter what the translation, as long as it's not the Watchtower, if you know what that means. I hope I didn't offend you, but that's okay. Uh, but otherwise, pretty much every English Bible translation is going to point you in the right uh, direction. Okay, now if you have more questions on how we got our New Testament, I'd love to discuss them with you after church. Let's get back to what Scripture is actually saying to us. To understand just why Mark is so mean to us when the other gospel writers are so kind and generous, we need to understand what Mark emphasizes in his gospel. Namely, we need to understand something called the messianic secret. Pick up Mark this week and read it. You'll pick up on this immediately. All throughout Mark, 
Jesus does amazing stuff. He does miracles, and then he does his best to cover it up, all right? He's like, this is Area 51. Don't tell anyone what just happened here. Jesus, for example, saved some of his teaching just for the 12 disciples. He didn't tell everyone everything. He commanded some people whom he healed to tell no one about it, and none of them obeyed that command. The demons he cast out kept identifying Jesus as the Son of God. What do you have to do with us? You're the Son of God. And Jesus kept commanding them to be silent. Now, the interesting thing is the demons kept Jesus' commands, but the people didn't. So I don't know quite what to make of that. That's a different sermon. When Peter correctly identified that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus quickly shushed him. Jesus seems to not want anyone to know who he is. So now we have our second why question. I've answered the first why with the second why. Why does Jesus want to conceal his identity? And there's a lot we could say. But for our purposes this morning, let's leave it at this. Whenever Jesus' messianic secret would be spilled, for example, when a healed person went and told everyone about it, the crowds surrounding Jesus would demand healing, and there was nothing else he could do for the rest of the day. Now, Jesus liked healing. Don't get me wrong. He wasn't begrudging about it, like, dang it, I have to heal another person. I'm sure that was very exciting and fulfilling for Jesus to do. But healing wasn't the only thing that Jesus came to do. As a matter of fact, the healings were meant to point to a greater truth. God's kingdom is appearing in this world, and it is a place where the lame walk and the blind see and the prisoners are set free. See, those healings were subordinate to Jesus' primary purpose. I think this is this idea that when Jesus would tell people who he was, it kind of messed up his ministry, is portrayed better nowhere else than by Peter's confession of Jesus as being the Messiah. I'm going to give you my paraphrase. Jesus said to the disciples, who do you believe that I am? And Peter piped up and said, you are the Christ, which means Messiah. And Jesus said, nice job, Peter. Don't tell anyone. By the way, I'm going to Jerusalem so I can be accused, beaten up, suffer, die, and rise again. And Peter didn't like that at all. He took Jesus aside and yelled at him, no, you're the Messiah. You can't do that. Get how when Jesus told his closest disciples who should have understood him the best who he was, they got in the way and said, no, we won't let you go and do what you want to do. We have a plan. Get on board, Jesus. It was very ironic. They're saying, yes, you are Israel's promised king. Now do what we say. How much of our lives are like that when it comes to God? Hey, God, I need you to do this in my life. And I won't believe that you're good unless you do. Do we really know goodness well enough to be able to say that? Is there anyone out there who knows exactly what the right thing to do is in every situation that you ever come across? If you raise your hand, you're outing yourself this morning as a fool. I don't know what else to tell you. We don't. We are not the experts on good. It's like, you know, when, when your children come up to you and they, you, know, you, you tell them, you can't do that. And they say, you must hate me. And, you know, I'm, I'm not there yet. My kids aren't old enough to talk to me like that yet. But it's going to be really hard for me when that happens. And I'll be like, are you the stupidest person in the world? <laughs> do you not remember, like, the last million years and it feels like a million years? how I've taken care of you, how deeply I've loved you? Have I done anything in your life 
because I didn't want you to be happy. That was the driving reason. I, you know, if you're a young person here this morning and you just said that to your parents this morning, you know, you, you hate me, uh, I, I'm, I'm really sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean to call you out like that. <laughs> but we don't even know what the good stuff is and we're trying to boss Jesus around, left and right. God, you can't really be God unless you play by my rules. I mean, who's really God in that situation, in that scenario? I'll let that one hang for a minute. That's the reason for the messianic secret in Mark. If Jesus starts telling people who he really is, people will try to make him do what they think he should do. And they'll try and stop him from doing what he came to do. As I've been looking ahead to Easter and Good Friday, I read this quote in a Bible dictionary, and it's been running through my head ever since. John the Baptist was killed by Herod, and no one understood how God could let that happen. And if the disciples were bewildered in the case of John, it made even less sense that Jesus the Messiah would have to suffer and die. Jesus' ideas about Messiahship seemed to be just the opposite of what the disciples in Israel as a whole had been expecting. And of course, that's Mark's point. He wants to demonstrate that Jesus is a kind of upside-down Messiah, or more precisely, he is a right-side-up Messiah faced with an upside-down world. See, that's why Mark ends his gospel with the women running away, petrified and silent from the empty tomb. Nothing, nothing could have prepared them for finding the tomb empty. Because they weren't foolish ancient people who didn't know anything. Sometimes we think that, right? Those dumb ancient people, you know, they didn't know things like dead people stay dead. They knew that. That's why they were shocked when the tomb was empty. Nothing could have prepared them for that. I know it's true because Jesus literally told them over and over again that he was going to die and rise on the third day. And they get there on the third day and the tomb's empty and the angel says, he is alive. And they go, who could have seen this coming? Totally blown away. Nothing could have prepared them for that. Because in an upside-down world, dead people stay dead. And we know it. Have any of you ever gone to a funeral sitting on the edge of your seat like, do you think he'll come back to life? Anybody? Have you ever done that? Of course not, because we know that in the world, the way that it is, when you die, you are dead. That doesn't change. People don't come back to life. If you were here on Good Friday, you already heard me talk about this right side up and upside down stuff a bit. But I can't say it enough. We live in an upside down world where death rules, but we've been upside down for so long that we think it's right side up. It's the only thing that we've ever known. Of course people die. They've always died as far back as we can remember. But God, who created our world, has the audacity to tell us that death is the intruder, not the natural end. Death is the upside-down thing, not life. 
We think, of course, nations go to war. They've gone to war since the beginning of time. But God says a day is coming when we'll beat our swords into plowshares. We will use our weapons to grow food and live in peace because we will never need a sword again. Of course, the lion eats the lamb. That's what lions do. They're carnivores, duh. See, I know all about biology. But God says a day is coming when the lion will lie down with the lamb. That's a picture of cuddling up together and going to sleep because you are absolutely safe. Now, honestly, I don't know if lions and lambs will literally lie down together or if that's a metaphor. And that's exactly my point. The picture is so right side up to an upside down person like me, like you, that we can't even really tell what it means except that it will be more wonderful than we could possibly imagine. And I think what we really need on Easter Sunday is the capacity first to be like those women at the empty tomb, to be shocked by who Jesus is and exactly how audacious his plans are. He's not coming, folks, to get you just that little bit further so that you'll be happy in life. He's not coming just to add a little bit onto the top. He is coming to take your upside-down world and make it right-side up. We need to stop pretending that we've got it so figured out that we know what God will do and what he won't do. Yeah, we've got some limits laid out for us. Like he won't lie to us. He won't abandon us. That he'll do everything he said and so on. But I think we need some imagination for all that he is going to do. If you've been a Christian for 100 years like me, that's obviously a metaphor for me, although I know for some of you it's nearly literal, This will be my last Sunday. (laughs) When you've been a Christian forever like me, we get to like Jesus a lot, right? You know, we appreciate having Jesus around. We get all warm and fuzzy when we think of him. But folks, he is so much more alive than warm and fuzzy. He's so much more vibrant than that. He's more mighty than that. We need to remember, we have to count on the fact that if we truly follow Jesus, if we really come into contact with him, we're going to feel spun around like a top, totally out of control, scared out of our wits, completely inadequate to all that he calls us to, and yet at the same time as safe and thriving as we can possibly be. It seems contradictory, but that's because we're only beginning to be turned right side up. We don't have our balance yet, and frankly, maybe we won't until Jesus comes back. Let me tell you something about those wonderful women at the tomb. In the book of Proverbs, one of the key Proverbs, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Those were wise women who ran away from the tomb. Not because they ran away from Jesus never to return, but because when they encountered the power of God in that place, they said, oh, wow. And they were so overwhelmed that all they could do was run away. You know, here's the good thing. I mean, if I can bring a little Matthew, Luke, and John into it this morning. Jesus didn't leave them terrified. 
Even the angel whom they see in the tomb. Remember, they, they saw the angel and they were already terrified. And what did the angel say? Don't be terrified. It's going to be okay. We watched this great uh, video this last Christmas of the shepherds uh, meeting the angels. Uh, you know, they're out in the fields at night and the angels appear before them. And, uh, and the angels say to them, don't be afraid, as they're shaking on the ground. And one of them turns to the other one and says, you don't be afraid. Right? Like, come on, we're going to be scared. But I think what they're really saying is you don't have to be scared forever. That's not the end. Yesterday, I went to a nephew's birthday party. His favorite gift was a new Spider-Man costume. And after he got it, I think it was the last one, right? He, what did he do? Anyone? Yeah, he, he immediately ran out and he put it on. And he ran around because he was Spider-Man. There's something about superheroes that captures our imagination. The ability to enjoy those, the, the abilities to enjoy, excuse me, to be able to fly. That sounds neat, right? To have superhuman strength the opportunities to do good. Maybe that's my favorite thing about superheroes, is they live in a world where they have the power to fix all of their problems. Good guy wins. They live in a simple world because superheroes are black and white. And you know, I think this is the imagination we need to bring to Jesus as well. I remember watching him running around in that costume. It's like, why aren't there Jesus costumes? Besides the fact that it would feel kind of sacrilegious. <laughs> but you know, why don't we think of Jesus that way? That, that picture of Jesus telling all those superheroes, and that's how I saved the world. And I like to think that all of their response was, dude, that was way better than what I did. The Hulk smashes, <laughs> but Jesus puts back together, and he turns it right side up. What's holding you back? What's ups what upside-down thing has a hold on your heart this morning? What's your great fear? Because we live in a world where fear is a real thing. The Bible tells us in the book of Colossians, chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision in your flesh, God made alive together with him. Resurrection Sunday is your Resurrection Sunday. God made alive together with him. He made us right side up, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside how? He nailed it to the cross. 